0: Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John
1: is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire, He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary.
0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. David Cypress is our guest today. You may know that name because David is an iconic cartoonist for The New Yorker. Since 1998, he's published nearly 700 cartoons based on perceptions of shared human experience, rooted in his lifelong love of history. It's with humor, creativity, and vulnerability, David shares stories about his complicated family. The day he decided to pursue cartooning professionally, And then the 25 years of rejection that followed. Hear that again. 25 years of drawing, of submitting, and of being rejected that followed. Don't miss today's awesome episode. You're going to hear an engaging conversation with an artist who understands that personal thoughts and feelings oftentimes lead to remarkable ideas and transformation in life. So without further ado, my friends, grab your favorite doodle pens, your favorite Live Inspired journals, sit up, take a sip of coffee or tea or whatever's in your mug today and welcome with me, our newest friend and now yours, his name is David Cypress. David, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary.
1: Thank you, I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, my friend, when you walk into a schoolhouse, I know that you were inspired and encouraged dramatically when a New Yorker cartoonist walked into your school building years and years ago. But when you walk into one, or you walk into a grocery store, you walk into a cocktail party, and someone says, what do you do for a living? How do you respond to that?
1: With a big smile on my face, I tell them I'm a cartoonist. It's a joyful thing for me to be able to say, I have this incredibly fun career, and I never fail to get a smile from people. The people I'm in contact with are familiar with the New Yorker magazine, and, and everybody says, oh, what I love most are the cartoons.
0: So let's go back not only to The New Yorker, but uh, even before that, we're going to back the train all the way up to January 16th. I think the year is 1947. Right. The man I have in front of me was born then, but the picture that graces your book is not of the day you were born. It's of maybe six or so years later, apparently on a Sunday. How do you know it's a Sunday and who's on the front of that book?
1: Well, I know it's a Sunday because it's the only day my father lowered his sartorial standards to walk outside the house in just a sport jacket, tie and slacks as opposed to a three piece suit. So that's how I know that it was a Sunday. In the picture of my father, my sister, my mother and myself. And the picture is sort of eloquent about each of us. I think my father is looking very proud of himself, which he always did because he was a proud immigrant who had made it in this country and, and fulfilled his dream to assimilate and become an American success. My mother has a delightful smile on her face because she, at least publicly, always smiled and always enjoyed everything. My sister looks a little grim. Her smile is a little scary to me because the the story of my sister is a little scary. And then there's me in the front pointing my toy six gun right at the camera And I wore those toy six guns all the time when I was that age in another time when parents didn't have a problem with that or anybody else did.
0: You mentioned that your parents are both from immigrant families coming from the Soviet Union. I think your father originated from Ukraine, made the journey over in 1914. Talk about what you knew about your dad growing up, Not, not about what he did for a living, but what did you know about his past?
1: You touch on something that's a theme in the book, which is my perpetual frustration, my inability to get my father to talk about that experience. And that's not unusual I've discovered from men, especially of that generation, who like my father wanted the past to kind of disappear. My father sort of wanted to act as if he had sprung from the soil in Central Park as opposed to the soil in in the Ukraine. He frustrated me and he would not answer questions about it. I got dribs and drabs over the years. And right at the very end, just before he died, I got maybe 10 minutes of information. So I know very little. I do know that he was born in a shtetl in Ukraine, about 150 miles southwest of Kiev. Kiev, Mm. And went across the continent in in a horse cart and then a train, leaving at a time just months before the outbreak of the First World War. I suspect, again, I don't have the information, but I suspect it's because his three older brothers were would probably have been fodder for the Russian army to be conscripted, which for a Jew was a terrible fate, actually, and uh, Jewish boys were really mistreated. Anyway, his mother, his three, his three brothers, and his sister came across uh, an arduous journey in steerage, as so many did, and landed at Ellis Island, and then eventually made their way to Williamsburg in Brooklyn, uh, where essentially my father uh, spent the next few years and then dropped out of school in the fifth grade to go to work to help his mother out. And that's about as much as I ever knew about that past. The other problem was that we had no knowledge or connection to his original family. I never met them, I didn't know them, and why that was the case was another mystery that I never got to solve and I never got the answer to.
0: So you didn't know about his past, you only knew about his present. You knew that your father was an extraordinarily well-dressed man, well-put-together man, very hardworking man, by my math, working 60, 70 hours every single week. And I think he said something in the book similar to, only rich people take days off. He said,
1: days off are for rich people. And uh, yeah, that was his philosophy. When I became a cartoonist, one of his objections was, it looked like I was having too much fun. He felt like, If you're not suffering in your work, then you're not doing the right work, which is ironic because from my observation, my father was happiest when he was in his store working and so very inconsistent there.
0: There's a a telling story you wrote about, I think it's from 1959, your father's working, he had a wonderful security system, you can unpack that one in your own words, but he had a wonderful security system that eventually is breached. Would you talk about that story with our listener?
1: My father had a little jewelry store, uh, very successful, about a block. Your listeners probably won't all know what Bloomingdale's is, but it was a very pop- it is a very popular department store in New York. And my father's store was right near there. And he always talked about his security system. He would point to his very thick bifocals and say, this is my security system. If you don't look good to me, I don't buzz you in. Well, one day in 1959, two gentlemen knocked on the glass. And my father thought they looked okay because they had nice overcoats and they were carrying Bloomingdale shopping bags. Mm. So he buzzed them in, which was a big mistake. They then proceeded to, try, to attempt to rob my father. Now the story of this was told by my father at the dinner table that night. And he described how these guys came in and it some pretty quickly pulled a gun on him and said, one of the guys said, give me everything in the window. My father said, no, I worked my entire life for what's in that window. You can't have it. Well, we're gonna shoot you. My father said, go ahead, shoot me. And this went on and on over and over. He would not give in. And finally the frustrated robber said, well, you gotta give us something. So my father gave him like a $20 wedding ring and sent them on their way. Now it's a a terrific story. It sounds like a lot of fun, but sitting there at the dinner table, my first reaction was, wow, he's so brave. I mean, he's just like my cowboy heroes on TV. But it, but slowly this worm of discontent and sadness started going through my head. And pretty soon I was thinking, well, what about me? Yeah. You were willing to die for the bracelets and the necklaces and the cufflinks and leave me without a father? What about me? And I got extremely upset by that and held that, resentment towards the jewelry for almost my entire life until at some point, my very wise wife gave me another version of the story. She pointed out that my father's compulsion in almost every situation in life was to bargain. He couldn't help himself, it's, it's just, he was on autopilot. And mm-hmm. she said, he wasn't thinking about the gun, he wasn't thinking about dying, he wasn't thinking about you, he was doing what he always does, getting his price. That was an enormous relief to me because it allowed me to forgive him for what I was very upset about almost my entire life. I still don't like the jewelry very much, but
0: curious about the jewelry. I'm curious about that focus on the things he had in the window. That question that you asked was not only asked about your father's love of you, but about your mother's and about your sister's. And it's a question a little boy asked really his entire childhood and would the specter that followed him throughout the majority of his life thereafter. Talk about that question. What about me?
1: It's an awful thing, kind of, to have to ask yourself over and over throughout your life whether or not your father loves you. There were moments when I knew he did. When I was a boy, a little boy, and we went out together. The rare times we did, he always held my hand, and I just knew from that I could feel the love, you know. But his his plans for me, his fantasies of what I would become got in the way. I never felt like I could be myself, that I was being loved for myself, maybe that I would only be loved if I followed the plan. And that led to some pretty awful confrontations, Uh, one in particular that was quite devastating for me. But as I, one of the wonderful things about writing this book is that I now feel closer to all three of them, my father and my mother and my sister. And I understand that my father really did love me. He was doing his best.
0: We'll talk about that confrontation that I think you're referencing here in a moment. You were a gifted student. You went to a wonderful grade school, elementary school. In high school, though, I want to call this out. You're a junior in high school, and you decide to try stand-up. My buddies and I, a couple years ago, probably 20 years ago now, were at a comedy club. And one of the funniest guys I know, wonderful guy, thought he would try it. He went out there, David, and I I have never heard louder crickets in my entire life. This was the greatest failure of comedy I've ever witnessed firsthand. And I love this guy and I love his heart. I love his humor. Comedy is hard. Stand-up is hard. Junior, you try it and you kill it. You do extraordinarily well. Talk about that. First of all, why would you try? What were you you seeking?
1: Well, Well, first of all, I have to say that something about me I've never quite understood When I get in front of a crowd of people like that, I completely relax. I completely Mm. calm down. I don't know why that is. Um, One-on-one with people, I can be nervous. But when I'm in front of 700 people like I was that day, I just felt completely calm. I wanted to try it. I felt like I could do it. And I'm really glad I did it because I learned a couple of really important lessons about making people laugh, uh, which I still turn to today. The first one is that timing is really, really important, and that timing is a kind of power that you can exert over an audience. And I felt like I felt that power that day, and I felt like I knew how to do it make them wait, make them wait, hit them with a punchline. (laughs) And the other more important thing I learned, which is true of my cartoons, my book, everything creative I've ever done. Which is that for me, if I want, I realized that day I was making jokes about mothers who don't let you wear peg pants and tab collars, mothers who know what every other boy got on his exams uh, and compares you to them, fathers who try to tell you about the facts of life like four years after you learn them in the playground. These are all jokes <laughs> about who I am. And I suddenly realized. my classmates and schoolmates were laughing like crazy. And I realized all I would ever have to do to find humor was to look in the mirror and think about the things that personally matter to me Hmm. and make jokes about them. And they would connect with an audience. And those are the two things I learned that day that have carried me through my cartooning ever since.
0: Hmm. There's a spiritual writer named Henry Nouwen who wrote that what is most sacred and personal is most universal. I think
1: that's true. Absolutely.
0: You you go on from the comedy club junior year of high school ultimately on to Williams College. A why there and what were you uh, what were you seeking professionally?
1: Well, I, I've never told this before, but my high school was incredibly competitive. Let's just face the facts. There were like 700 mostly Jewish boys, all of whom really smart, all of whom aiming for Harvard. It was so much pressure. In ninth grade, we were already given a course in how to conduct yourself in a college interview, so that the pressure to, you know, was building and building. And the my mother went in to see the college advisor, and he said, "You know, David, David wouldn't do well at a big school. He's uh, too many insecurities. He'd be really good at a small school. I suggest Williams." So that's where my mother came home and said, that's where you're going. And so that she made me, of course, apply to 11 other schools. But uh, when I got into Williams, that's where we decided to go, which I'm very happy about because it is a fantastic school to have most 10 people in a classroom all the way through school was a great experience. Only one problem with Williams College. Same with my high school. (laughs) They were all male. Uh, I never had a, a male classmate or a male professor in all my years at, at, in those schools, which caused some problems in the future. So, But uh, yeah, I wound up there and I studied history. I'd always been loved history, almost as I lo- much as I love making cartoons. And I studied history there. And uh, when I graduated, I went on to Harvard to graduate school to study Russian history.
0: What a great pivot. So from Williams into Harvard, into the first semester and into this, I think a pivotal story for you in a moment in your life. I have another dear friend who decided not to follow her father's vision of medical school. Her father is this bigger than life personality, Greek immigrant to the United States. And I I remember she relayed the story. He's banging his fist against the table saying, who are you to tell me what you are going to do with your life? who are you to tell me what you will do with your life to his daughter to his daughter you call home to your father and you share with him at the end of this first semester that you've decided to make a pivot in your life Uh, how did that go over
1: well about as well as your friends uh i it took all my courage to call him and i I did it because it became more and more clear to me that, as I say in the book, that I was I was getting trapped in the wrong life. And if I didn't do something about it soon, I was gonna be living a life I didn't wanna live. I always knew I wanted to be a cartoonist. When I told my father ultimately that I had dropped out, uh, what I got back was fierce anger, first bargaining, offered me a car to go back, offered me some money to go back. I still said no because I knew that my life was on the line, basically. And finally, my father said, You know, we get with the world class education we gave you, this is how you repay us. I kept refusing and refusing. And then I got angry and tearful. And then my father cursed me and hung up the phone. And at that moment, I felt a kind of devastation I'd never felt before. I never understood how much his approval had meant to me and how alone and scared I felt without it. I was in Harvard Square, and I got on my bicycle, and I uh, went to this steep street that leads down into uh, Harvard Square. And I I don't understand exactly why I did it, but I closed my eyes, lifted, pedaled as fast as I could, lifted my feet off the pedal, and went right into four lanes of oncoming traffic. Brakes screeched, people screamed, I hit the curb, I landed on my butt on the other side. And then, like I say in the book, only a 22 year old could come up with this uh, words that I said to myself were, which were, well, I guess I'm supposed to go on living. And then I got up, I went to a hamburger place called Bartley's Burgers. I ordered a cheeseburger and I drew a cartoon. And that was the moment when I felt, okay I'm gonna
0: be a cartoonist. Mm. What was the cartoon you drew at that burger shop? It's a picture
1: of my father and me. And my father is saying, why do you need to find out who you are when I can just tell you?
0: (laughs) Thank you for sharing it. I know so much of your book, uh, and I think this is true for many wonderful authors and cartoonists, you almost feel sorry. And I hope you listen to me all the way before you hang up on me. You almost feel sorry for the artist or the author about their story and about their life and about their misery while you're turning pages. Watch flipping the page to see what happens next. Uh, why, why then be so vulnerable? Why share that story of Harvard Square? Why share the story of that bike and the, the stories of your father's disapproval and so many others that are part of that story?
1: I never sat down and said, Well, I'm going to be really vulnerable right now and write these stories. These are the stories that have been rattling around in my head, and I felt like I wanted to get them down in paper. And my wife will tell you, discretion is not one of my <laughs> virtues anyway. I I never had a second thought. And and all part of it is that I've done thousands and thousands of cartoons over 50 years. And a large majority of them are just as revealing as my book. Uh, they, there may be a joke that disguises it a little, but they're almost all about me, about what I'm afraid of, what makes me anxious, what worries me, what makes me angry. And so... Writing the book didn't seem that much of a journey away from what I'd always done. I don't know how else to express myself, actually. I really don't. Well, in
0: 1969, you weren't a successful published author or artist. You were eating burgers by yourself with a flat tire on your bike, drawing a picture that no one's going to buy. What were some of the jobs you did in the early days before you started becoming a little bit more successful as an artist?
1: Well, I did. there weren't very many of them. The only one that I really stuck out for any period of time was uh, working in a bookstore in, and then in a library in, in, in Boston. I did, I, there's a cartoon in the book of this described my, my problem with jobs. Uh, it's two got young guys walking down the street and the other one, one of them's complaining. My boss is always telling me what to do. <laughs> and I, I had a problem with authority uh, understandably after the experiences with my father. So at some point I thought, screw it. I'm just gonna do these cartoons and see if I can start making a living. And honestly, it, it didn't take too long. I mean, I wouldn't call it a living today, but back in the 70s, I was living in Boston. People were generous, had lots of friends. And so we were able to support each other. And pretty soon I, I did what I've been doing to this day, just being a cartoonist in order to make a living.
0: You gave a a talk at your college, a couple, uh, maybe about a decade ago now, and you began with this picture of uh, another artist, I believe from the New Yorker, drawing a beautiful cartoon, probably of the Renaissance, and it's this beautiful painter, beautiful painting that he's just finished, holding the the little uh, instrument in his hand, turning around to a friend, and below the painting are the words, uh, no, I never thought about writing funny little words below these. So, something uh, to that, effect.
1: Yeah, that, I, I never,
0: thought? I never thought
1: of writing a funny little caption.
0: Correct. Yeah. So for cartoonist, is it hard as an artist to recognize that what you do is art?
1: Well, that's a, that's a loaded question. I mean, in a way, I think cartoonists are very proud that they, what they do is art. On the other hand, if any artist has an ear for the pompous self important stuff, it's cartoonists. And so, At least in my case I try not to take myself too seriously that way I did I did have a 20-year career as a quote-unquote serious artist I made sculpture uh, which I ultimately stopped doing I had started in a weird way I thought well my father might approve of the fact if I do something serious art-wise so I tried it I did pretty well but the problem was it's really hard to get your sense of humor into pieces of sculpture. And humor has always been my go-to place. So that didn't last very long.
0: So you've been doing this now, like you said, for decades and decades. Where, where do you find the inspiration to create the work?
1: I have something I think of as my cartoon brain. I have my regular brain and my cartoon brain and my cartoon brain's on pretty much all the time. And it's not so much finding inspiration as it is, listening, being aware on some level all the time for something that could be a cartoon, something that's funny. That's part of it. Another part is, it's just a question of examining my life, my experiences, like I said before, that the feelings that certain things uh, bring up for me. And that's that's almost a kind of meditation that I do when I come to my studio. I sort of open myself up for possibilities. What's wonderful about that is, Whatever you're focusing on that day, it's often something completely different that pops into your head, uh, which is a wonderful feeling. The inspiration is also has to do with the joy that I experience every time I have a terrific cartoon idea. Uh, that moment of realization is just utter pure joy for me. Mm. And that keeps me connected to my work all the time.
0: So there's a lot of questions from that. What, what makes a terrific cartoon?
1: A really good cartoon, for me, is a combination of something really familiar and something unfamiliar. You give people something that surprises them and makes them laugh, but at the same time, there's some part of them is saying, I I thought of that too. And it's in that moment of recognition that the humor really lies. Um, I think that's, for me, what makes a really great cartoon is a cartoon I do where my audience connects to me through humor with something I'm feeling and experiencing that they've also experienced, but they never thought of seeing it in a funny little drawing like it is right in front of them. That That's my idea of a, of a really good cartoon.
0: At, at this point in your career, do you draw and create because it, just, it interests you? Or are you still creating for the audience? Like when you, when you come up with an idea, are you hoping that O'Leary sees it in the New Yorker or is it just an idea that you need to share with the world and whether anybody sees it or not, eh, that's not the point. I want to create something cool today.
1: I honestly have never thought about the audience when I'm making a cartoon. Uh, again, it's a, it's a self-regarding operation for me. I I, I don't think about anything. What, what's been so incredible to me is that what makes me laugh also makes other people laugh. So I don't really have to think about them at all. All I have to do is make myself laugh. I have to come up with something that, that tickles me. It has been pretty consistent over 50 years that if it tickles me, it's gonna tickle the reader. And so that's, that's my approach. Just never think about the audience.
0: How many will you create in the course of a week?
1: For my magazine, The New Yorker, the, the way it works is the cartoonist hands in, what we call roughs which are just rough sketches of ideas uh for a lot of the time they insist on 10 to 15 ideas a week in large part because that you need to constantly prove to them that you can do it uh, and so if you add that up let's say 10 ideas a week that's a lot of cartoons in the course of the year and a lot of rejection because out of all those hundreds of cartoons if i sell 25 In a year, I'm doing really, really well. Uh, So you can see behind me, those are some of my file cabinets chock full of rejected cartoons.
0: Uh, I, I want to talk about those rejected cartoons. Even the way you began answering the question a moment ago, you said, my magazine, The New Yorker, my magazine. Well, gosh! For two and a half decades, it certainly was not. For twenty-five years, David, you, you submitted weekly, weekly proposals, re- weekly artwork, and weekly you heard back. No, thank you. Can you can you talk about Can you talk about handling rejection?
1: First thing to say about that is, for what I do, uh, people may not be familiar with it. it's single panel cartoons. In my area of work, there's the New Yorker magazine, and then there's everything else. It's it's beyond the top, you can't even see number two anywhere in the distance. And so it just seemed unthinkable to me to stop doing it. I actually, I've always, I I have a lot of problems with uh, self-confidence and various things, but about my cartoons, I always, for whatever magical reasons, I've always been confident. I've always felt I was really good. And all those years, I just kept telling myself, it's their problem, it's not my problem, someday they'll adjust and figure it out. Uh, and that that was really helpful. Now I'm not denying that there was a lot of pain and suffering uh, and, and disappointment, there was. But like I said before, I've always handled that this kind of disappointments in life by just doing more cartoons. And so uh, never short of ideas, I kept sending them in. Yeah. And one day the cartoon editor who had been rejecting me for all those years was fired. And a new cartoon editor came in and he loved my work and knew me and the day that I got the fax that I had sold my first one next to my marriage was probably the happiest day of my life,
0: yeah. And just to slow it down so it really sinks in, from the early 1970s, a yeah. long time ago until 1997, David was submitting this work weekly, his heart and soul, his, the best of his ideas and weekly for 25 years, it's a long time getting rejected. The entire time over those 25 years, a bigger than life father looking over his shoulder, reminding him uh, of the life he should have chosen.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: In, in, in 97, when you get that first approval, David, we love your work. We, we want to see this one through. Uh, talk about how you felt and then talk about what it felt like to share that with your father.
1: Well, as I said, I honestly, I never felt happier than I felt at that moment. Uh, just to have my life and I had been fantasizing about that since I was about six years old. I tell in the book that I drew cartoons as a kid, cut them out, scotch tape them into my parents' New Yorker magazines over the cartoons that were there to kind of live out my fantasy that I would someday be a New Yorker cartoonist. So at the, the moment I got that fax, it was just amazing. The first person I called was my wife. And then I immediately called my father. And even for my father, the New Yorker magazine meant something. He understood that that was something really good. And, uh, he hesitatingly offered a little bit of pride in me in the phone call. But what I didn't understand was that when you sell a cartoon to the magazine, it doesn't mean it's going to appear the next week. In fact, uh, That one did not appear to July. I sold it in October. It was my first one. And as the weeks went by, my father would say, David, I got my New Yorker. You're not in it. And then he started saying, David, are you sure you weren't dreaming? You weren't making that up? You sure you sold that cartoon? And the really sad thing is that about two months later, my father died. And so he never got to see my cartoon in the New Yorker, which uh, was... Pretty sad for me. I wish that hadn't been the case.
0: Let's talk about your father's death and you eulogizing him. You you almost printed it out verbatim in your book, but you talked about his eye for beauty. And you talked about this boy coming over at a young age from Ukraine and the the journey and and, the difficulty of his early life. And his eye not only for beauty in the store but the eye for beauty of his wife and the marriage they had. But you left out the fact that he also had two children. You you left out the fact that he may not have been the father to you and to your sister that maybe you both desired and deserved. Take that in any direction that you'd like.
1: Well, I think the one thing that's not sort of accurate about what you're saying is that he tried to be the father to my sister. And that absorbed almost all his strength and energy for parenting, because my sister was a problem. And only in therapy and later years did I realize that I was only getting the leftovers. Uh, And uh, I knew I felt unloved at times and that things were unfair, but I I never, at a young age, I never understood that it had to do with that imbalance. He was only doing his best. He was being the person that he was capable of being. Honestly, that's what I... I realized writing this book that I never really understood before that given who he was, where he came from and the challenges and difficulties he had experienced in his life by taking certain risks were the things that guided him when he tried to take care of me and prevent me from taking the same kind of risks and, and not experiencing the bad stuff that he had experienced. To me, that just felt like control. My whole life felt like he had a version of me he wanted and he he wasn't going to let go of it. But in the end, I began to realize that he was really in some ways he did love me and he was trying to protect me. As for my sister, that's a whole other story. He tried really hard and then he tried to get me to agree to take care of her after he was gone, something I refused to do. I don't think he's a failure as a parent because I think he had a very hard road to hope.
0: You know, And we're spending the majority of our time when we're not talking about you and your work, talking about your dad. The reality is we could spend equal amount of time talking about your mother or talking about your sister. And th- there are so many layers to this story and so much brokenness within this story. And one of the beautiful things that comes out of this story is at the end of the journey, you have empathy for all three in radically different ways. But you come full tilt to recognize where they came from. not Not what you needed from them, but ultimately why they were the way they were. In, in fact i think you sum it up brilliantly in a cartoon near the end of the book you're walking on a in fact all your cartoons they're auto autobiographies they're all you yeah you picture you know other folks in the in these works but you i feel you are part of all of these cartoons and images there's a couple walking on the beach and uh, i'll let you describe where they are where the sun is and what the what the inscription is below it
1: i don't remember the exact caption uh, getting a point in my life where that stuff's hard to, but I'll try. My wife and I were in Montauk on Long Island uh, on the beach trying to recover from the death of my sister. I had raised a lot of questions about, well, my sister's death raised a lot of questions about feeling like life was worth living. Yeah, And uh, the cartoon is me and my wife walking on the beach and I'm saying, I think I say, okay, Stephanie, you win, life is worth living. Something like that, I, I don't have the exact caption, but it was about, it was so weird because the cartoon was published in the magazine the very week that this awful thing happened with my sister. I had no idea the two were connected until I saw it a week later and shared it with my wife. Yeah, that that is my most intensely personal cartoon, I have to say.
0: and. The timing of it, after the death by suicide of your sister and the pain that led her to that, and everything else, and here you and your wife are having this conversation truly around life and death and the meaning behind it all on the beach, and the New Yorker prints that by pure coincidence or or divine intervention on that very day. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh, summary, I think, to your life. This lady on the beach with you, her name's not Stephanie though. In real life, it is Jenny.
1: Yeah,
0: and she's not from New York or the or Ukraine she's from Alabama that's right I I love Jenny she's not the central figure in this book she's certainly the central figure in your life so I have a couple questions around Jenny the the first is what was it about her that you were first drawn to she's beautiful
1: I don't I'm not just saying that because she may listen to this podcast uh yeah a minute I and you know it's one of those mid things a minute I laid eyes on her I thought this is the one because she's so smart and so accomplished and so kind and so wise, all at the same time, uh, and uh, those qualities, I tried. To, I don't. I didn't sit down and say, "Well, I'm going to make a portrait of my wife that shows her to be this way." It's just that the interactions that became necessary with her that I recounted in the book. In every one of them, she provides me with wisdom, provides mm. me with a kind understanding. And often with a different way to look at things that had been tormenting me. Uh, so, and and she's a terrific person. She's done amazing things with her work and her life. And so uh, I, she's beyond just being my wife. She's also my hero. Wow. So, what a beautiful, yeah. what a
0: beautiful expression. And uh, speaking of expressions, I think she's filled with them. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote back to you three what I call Jennyisms. Okay, (laughs) So these these pop in your book. I would imagine they are three of three million that she has, but I wrote them down. I think they're hilarious. So here comes number one. Tell us what in the world Jenny means. By the way, to remind our listeners, Jenny's from the South. Okay. So I will not say this in my Alabama twang here, but here it comes. Number one, I have seen cows hurt worse than that. Get well. So Jenny is number one. I have seen cows hurt worse than that. Get well. That pertains to an underdone steak
1: <laughs> that she served in a restaurant. Yeah.
0: I, I, Number two, it's so good. It makes you want to kick your own grandma. Yeah. It is so good. It makes you want to kick your grandma.
1: That again that is like? a food related one. When something is really delicious, she just comes out with that. Boy, this is so good. It makes you want to kick your grandma. So <laughs>
0: And the third and final one, I, I could do this all day long, but unfortunately we're running out of space here. But the third one is this, he looks like death eating a cracker. A cracker,
1: eating a cracker, yeah. <laughs> she doesn't even understand what that one means, but she says that another one is my get, my get up and go, got up and went. That's another one of hers. And it's so funny because, you know, I, I mentioned to you before we spoke that there's an audio book of my book that's coming out. And the reader had some queries about how to pronounce certain things in the book. And they were almost all Yiddishisms, like for yep. uh, <laughs> and, and shtetl and stuff like that. And then he said, and how do I pronounce your, your wife's mother's name? And her name is Waelin. And that to him was equally as mysterious as the Yiddishisms, so.
0: Well, you notice, yeah, I've not been quoting the Yiddish back to you because I'm, I'm hopeless in that. And you've also not heard me quote the town where your father was born. Yeah, so we're just gonna tough. stay away from that as well, because okay. that, that was above my pay grade as well. Final thing I wanna talk about before we go into the Live Inspired Seven, which is the seven questions we ask all of our guests. It ties them all together in a beautiful bow. Counseling sessions. It's something that recently, I think people are more comfortable talking about. Many men though, would never talk about it. Not only do you talk about it, you wrote about it and you do cartoons on it. You're You're very open around this. When did you become more vulnerable on the fact that, yeah, I, I, I talk about my life. Yeah, I talk professionally. I seek advice from someone else, a third party.
1: Oh, that's that's interesting. First of all, again, I don't know what it is about me. I, I just can't not talk about everything. Um, but I'd use the therapy sessions were incredibly useful to me in the writing of the book because I don't like to tell people I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that I like. It to emerge from the storytelling. And by having a dialogue between me and my therapist, I could get that information out to the reader without ramming it down the reader's throat. And to me, I realized very early on that this was going to be a useful thing for me in the book. Another thing, you know, when you mentioned Ginny's Ginnyisms, I love writing dialogue. I've written thousands of cartoons, every one of them, a line of dialogue. It's the kind of writing that's easiest for me and therapy sessions are all dialogue. And I had a great time writing them because it was just easy for me, easier than almost anything else.
0: You know, you mentioned how it, it allowed you to kind of pull it off the page and make sure the reader connected with it. Is there a cartoon that you've done on one of those therapy sessions that you find uh, as one of your favorites?
1: Well, I've been in therapy almost my entire life, so I guess my favorite would have to be the one of the psychiatrist sitting next to the co- the open coffin and a woman saying he's still in therapy.
0: <laughs> what a perfect way to, to begin wrapping up, my friend. Well said. So I'm glad you are moving away now from the casket back into life. Let's talk about the live inspired 7. These are seven questions that tether all of our all of our guests together. The first one, and for a gentleman who's read voraciously, this one might be a little bit challenging, but what is the most influential book you've ever read?
1: Could I answer with the most influential book I've ever read that helped me write my book? Would that be okay? It's the autobiography uh, memoir of John le Carré, the incredible British spy thriller literary writer who wrote a, a memoir called The Pigeon Tunnel. And in that book, he released me by reading it from the need to be factual about every single memory. He says that, the, and he had the most incredible life of anyone you could ever read about. And he said at the beginning, I'm not sure everything in here is true, but they are the stories I've been telling myself my whole life. And so there's a truth in that that's more important than any fact checkable truth. And that book is really, really important to me for that mm. reason.
0: Well, it kind of re- reminds me of one of the, The cartoons you made, I think it ended up in the New Yorker. There's a school teacher in front of a room of desks, three little kids at the board doing math. The kid on the right side, his number is five plus seven. And at the bottom, he says 57. (laughs) The little blurb is, Well, that's how I feel. It may
1: may be wrong, but it's how I feel.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. So, speaking of feelings, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today?
1: I didn't worry quite as much as I do now. I was still able to feel optimistic most of the time and joyful. That started to, you know, kind of disappear more and more as time went on. But I remember as a kid, you see me in that photograph pointing my gun at the camera with a big smile on my face. I was the comedian. I was the happy kid. Uh, and I, I wish I, had hel- I could hold on to some of that joy.
0: Mm. If your home caught fire and all living things are out, including Jenny and her Jennyisms, what is one thing that you would run back in and save? Well, first
1: of all, don't forget my cats. I'd no, have your to,
0: cats. I said all living things. Gonna, the cats okay. are off the street, man—they're safe.
1: Wow, that's a tough question. I think I—I grab the book of photographs, the few photographs I have of my family. Uh, I would run in and grab that and my proof that I've had vaccination. <laughs> Those are the two things I'd probably run into get. Well, of course, I, I'd, I'd get my laptop too because I don't want to lose what's on there, but that's a tough question. I hope I've given a decent answer.
0: You've it a great answer. I'm, I'm going to ask one follow-up to it. Anything that your father gave you, I know he gave you some of the heirlooms, part of the, some of the things from the safe deposit box with Mr. Moses. Is there anything from there that you're like, man, this, this still has intrinsic meaning. And I would, I would for sure come out with that.
1: Well, actually, no, but there's a, there's an ancillary thing to that, which is i be several years ago after my father died and left me a little money, we spent it on art. Um, I have a collection of works on paper by artists who I admire and love. I would be an idiot not to try to save those because they're the most valuable things we have. Um, So In a way, it's something I got from him because they're beautiful things. And Mm. my father loved beautiful things and I always thought, it doesn't matter to me, but then I've come to realize it really does. And those beautiful things, uh, I would also, if I could possibly carry all of them, I would.
0: If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to?
1: I would like to have a conversation with my mother. I'd like to know how much of who she was originally got snowed under by the need to take care of my father and, and be his good soldier. Because yeah. I always sensed that she and I had this deep connection. She was the funny one. She was the one that loved to laugh. And I feel like, and especially towards the end of her life, you know, when people get older and they start having the forgetting issue, Sometimes they turn into this other person and sometimes it's the person they always were underneath. And at the end of her life, my mother became a mischievous, hilarious, sometimes devilish person uh, who cherished a little bit of freedom. And I would love to sit on a bench and talk to her about that and try to understand her journey.
0: Mm -hmm. What's the best advice that your mother or father or anyone else in your life has ever given you. So the best advice, David, you've ever received is?
1: It's from my wife. And it's just basically, we're all gonna die someday and bad things are gonna happen. And so why in the world would you waste time worrying about stuff that hasn't even happened now? Try to just enjoy yourself a little more, so.
0: I think I've seen a couple of your cartoons representing that uh, yeah. that idea. What advice would you give your 20-year-old self?
1: Hang in there, kid. It'll get better. It'll get better. Uh, The world isn't gonna end anytime soon just because you try to do what you really wanna do. Just hang in there and it'll get better.
0: Mm. David Cypress, author, comedian, artist, friend, uh, husband. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
1: David was an artist who spent his life trying to be a creative person and at the same time trying to be a good person, a kind person and a generous person failing often, but always with his eye on that as his goal.
0: Mm. Creative, kind, generous, failing forward. David, I wanna thank you for creating work that inspires, that renews hope, that reveals truth, and that reminds us that in spite of the hardship we all face, better days are in front of us.
1: Thank you, John. I really enjoyed this this talk with you.
0: Where where can we learn more about the book that you have recently published?
1: Uh, It's called, What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir. It's available everywhere. Got a wonderful review in the New York Times recently. Uh, and my hope is that if readers do want to buy the book, go to an independent bookstore because they need your they need your support.
0: My friends, that voice you just heard was David Cypress. Mine is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, as you know by now, I always try to pull one specific takeaway from a conversation so that I, and hopefully we, can implement it today and lead to a fulfilling, inspired life going forward. I leave today's conversation with David Cypress with the importance of using humor, creativity, and vulnerability. Vulnerability, you heard that a lot during this conversation, to overcome difficult circumstances or during challenging seasons. Speaking of difficult circumstances and challenging seasons, we find ourselves in the midst of one right now. Humor, creativity, vulnerability, recognizing that the end is not here. The foundation remains firm. God remains God and the best remains in front of us. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation with this cartoonist, Let me let you roll the old journal back a little bit farther to listen to another phenomenal artist. He's a children's author, illustrator. His name is Jared J. Krasowska. In our conversation, Jared shares the lessons he learned after being raised by his grandparents, how he shared his unconventional childhood in his book, Hey Kiddo, and serves as another important reminder that what you've weathered does not have to hinder the opportunity to live a better, bigger bolder, more impactful life going forward. If you want to hear more about Jared's incredible life story, check it out. It's episode 318 on the Live Inspired podcast. If you have a tough time tracking that down, just visit us at JohnO'LearyInspires.com forward slash podcast. One more time, my friends, I want to thank you for being part of our community here. I want to thank you for believing like I do in spite of the challenges that the foundation is firm and far better days are ahead. So for this time, And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. Keep drawing and live inspired. Well, Keeley Company's culture sets them apart, and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keeley Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keeley Cares by visiting them online at KeeleyCompanies.com.